Welcome to the New Holland Podcast. Welcome to episode two of the New Holland podcast. My name is Nigel Honeyman. I am the Combine Product Specialist for New Holland for the United Kingdom and Ireland. I've got to be a little bit careful about being a little bit too parochial and talking about the UK and Ireland the whole time because looking at the uh, listener statistics that we had for the episode one, we had listeners in America, we had them in Canada, all across Europe as well. Uh, so please forgive me if I, if I do mention the UK and Ireland. For this edition of the podcast, we're going to catch up with my colleague David Redmond, who's going to explain a little bit behind putting tracks on a T8 tractor. And also we're going to speak to Mark Howell. He is the global uh, product manager for alternative fuel vehicles. And he's going to talk to us about the the history of the diesel engine uh, so far in agriculture. I'm not sure that I like the concept of a, of a news piece in the podcast. It dates it very quickly, and news very quickly becomes history. But one thing that's happened in this last week, for particularly for the United Kingdom and Ireland, uh, is that the Lama Show, so that's the Lincolnshire Agricultural Machinery Manufacturers Association, um, has had to cancel its event. Usually the Lama Show is, uh, takes place in January, uh, they'd moved it back to May uh, this year up at the uh, National Exhibition Centre, the NEC at Birmingham. Uh, but they've now made the hard decision to uh, to cancel that show. Um, and in in light of safety, it's probably the probably the right move to make. What they've done now is that they've announced that the dates for the show uh, in 2022 uh, is back into January, and the show is due to take place on the 11th and 12th of January uh, again at the NEC in Birmingham. Well, today I'm with uh, Global Product Manager for Alternative Fuels, Mark Howe. Mark, good morning. Good morning, Nigel. How are you? Very well, very well. And I'm looking forward to having a chat with you today uh, because engine technology, uh, as it stands and as it's moving forward, uh, there's an awful lot to discuss. And, but first and foremost, just to, just to get your opinion on where we've been and where we currently stand, because certainly from a combine perspective, as I've been looking back over the uh, over the uh, last little while, uh, as recently as the 70s, we were still sending petrol engine combines into uh, certainly into North America. Now, diesel engines, I'm pretty pretty sure, are the the standard engine technology as we face on a on, on a global scale at the moment. Am I correct? Yeah, it's certainly above 50 horsepower. Um, obviously, when you get into the ground scale stuff, you can find a slightly wider um, range of engines, especially when you move out to India, example. Um, but no, I'm just looking um, at some of the history, and you know, the first first diesel engine was in a Fiat machine in 1939. So the diesel technology has been around and been the staple for for quite some time. We 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 are here speaking in the United Kingdom at the moment, and certainly for passenger vehicles, uh, the death knell has been sounded for for the diesel technology. I think uh, the government has announced that from 2030, uh, internal combustion engines are going to be phased out of out of out of passenger vehicles. But in terms of improving the emissions uh, for for diesel engines, what what has been the roadmap? Uh, because we're, it's still a roadmap that we're we're, we're travelling down at the moment. Um, 96 was the first attempt at tier one shall we call it and this was kind of a, just as 
just to put a stake in the ground um, where they legislated against the amount of particulate matter coming out of an exhaust and the nitrogen oxide or nitrous oxides um, coming. So there were two particular emissions that they wanted to reduce and it was a sad a sad year really because the particulate matter is the power plume and, and as you know Nigel the Fords especially uh, particularly the TWs that were produced in Belgium had a mighty power plume if you know phrases like if it's not smoking it's not working uh, you'll be very familiar with I'm sure I, I, I am very familiar with it I have seen the people wearing wearing the t-shirt uh, no smoke, no poke. <laughs> That's another. <laughs> so yeah, that that kind of was that that was understood as uh, not desirable in in '96. But really, it was um, 2002 um, when things really got um, cleaned up. Um, you know, we we went with um, less than half, or we doubled the uh, the emission regulation. So we had to really drop the uh, particulate matter um, down in 2002. And that's where, um, you know, that's where th that smoke disappeared um, in the main, in the, in the main for all manufacturers. Is it? But because when, when, when you mentioned all manufacturers, um, there wasn't one uh, sole roadmap pathway that every, everyone took. Now, it, it, it always seemed that there were two different uh, you mentioned the uh, the NOx, the nitrous oxides, and you mentioned mentioned the smoke, and there seemed to be two different schools of thought uh, with how to address this. One one would look at taking uh, addressing the, uh, the 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 particulate matter inside the engine, um, and looking at treating NOx outside the engine. And for other manufacturers, they 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 looked at looked at this the other way around. Is, we, we've obviously from from the FPT gone down one particular route, but can you just explain this idea of of um, increasing temperatures inside the engine and how that affects the certainly the particulate matter? By increasing the heat, you know the temperature inside the cylinder, you're going to get a cleaner burn. So we're going to we um, improved the injectors because we wanted to mist and atomize the fuel as much as possible because we wanted as much contact area as possible for the oxygen to get in, which is where the um, turbos also became standard to increase the amount of air. And then, as you know, Nigel, the intercoolers to cool all that air down. So we had very dense, very cold um, air um, going into the cylinder. And then that created the, the best explosion um, possible within the cylinder and by increasing the temperature, by getting the timing right with regards to the stroke of the engine. Obviously, on these engines, we don't have um, spark plugs because they're compression ignition. So we have a number of items we can play with um, to get that the best burn possible. That clears out the particulate matter. And that's where it's exactly where we were in 2002. Tier two was getting that burn as clean as possible and we reduce the particulate matter. However, what those high temperatures do is convert the nitrogen in the air to nitrogen oxide, which in turn is the creation of what was termed at the time the acid rain. So by cleaning up the particulates, 
and optimizing your fuel use because obviously if you can burn that smoke you get more power we were somehow encouraging an increase in the NOx because the NOx converts easier under high temperatures too and that's even less desirable for the for the environment the particulates is more for people's health the NOx is more for the environment so you've got like a uh, like a weigh scales if you like a balance beam that you need to tread that you increase the temperature you clean up the particulates but on the flip side you 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 want to reduce the knocks and that's where tier three came in to say right particulates are somehow where we want it to be but now manufacturers you've now got to really focus on on the knocks and that was a four-year gap between tier two and tier three and at tier three that's when things got um that's where the divide you talk about really came to play where different manufacturers approached the emission regulation in different ways am i right in thinking that tier three was the last time that we were not using the AdBlue, the selective catalytic reduction system on on our on our engines yeah yeah tier three was all about um exhaust recirculation and do a secondary burn on the exhaust gases to sort the particulate matter out so you you capture some of it and re and send it back through the cylinder which reduces the temperature inside the cylinder I can remember, and I think you and I were both there together when we were when we launched Tier Four, and we had the the Tier Four launch at Basildon, um, and this was the first of the um, SCR, the Selective Catalytic Reduction. This was the introduction of AdBlue into the engines, and I can remember speaking to one of the test um, drivers from one of the test farms on this, and I, I I asked him, I said, I said, what do you notice most about the engine? Um, and I was expecting some answer about, oh, it pulls better or or anything similar to that. But the one comment that he gave me at the time was that when I dip the oil in the morning, I can see the back of the dipstick. The the engine runs that clean. That, but that surely that wasn't the only benefit that we used to uh, that that we achieved when we introduced SCR into uh, uh, into the engines. Uh, no, well, the 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 biggest improvement was um, we went to a much more lively engine because we'd got rid of the um, exhaust gas recirculation, suddenly you had the engine that people remembered from 2002, 2003. You had this engine that wanted to do work. I mean, in, in the business, it's it's termed as transient response, and it's, it's the way the engine can respond to an input. It could be hitting a tram line um, while subsoiling. Um, there's an input made and because we'd stopped sending dirty um, gases back into the cylinder the combustion and the speed of reaction was improved but again at this stage this is where other manufacturers retained um, the EGR and added filters so we were following uh, you know as as New Holland we were following the on-road performance route because of our connection with our sister brands in FPT who make the engines and Iveco who had these legislation imposed on them quite some years before us um, but also at tier 4a the the emissions dropped 
an enormous it was another huge step change tier two to tier three was just moving the knocks but maintaining the pm but when we went to tier four or, or there were um t tier three b some of the people called it it was another it was as big a step change as it was from tier one to tier three we did it all again it was a huge amount the the, the amount of um emissions allowed from the exhaust was another huge step change at that point where where are we now with stage five and is there is there imminently to be a stage six or seven or eight so stage five um has once again reduced the particulate matter um not in a huge step change but now we're doing a particulate count um so the legislation has said um it's not so much the size of the particulates it's how many particulates so now we have to go again at, at cleaning the exhaust and making sure that any particulates that were likely to be released have burnt or have been captured um, and once again the NOx has a, had another step change so the NOx has gone down a huge amount again um, at stage five so within stage five we are the the numbers are are very small um, and then if if a stage six was to come in you know we we don't know what that would be but to look at the trucks it would be an analysis of co2 to to meet that legislation is going to be some level of optimizing of other systems it's going to be um the the emission will be an analysis of how efficient your machine is you know for every liter of um, diesel you burn how much work is that doing you know how many kilowatts is that engine putting out and that will identify um, lazy engines um, versus um, good sprightly engines and you can see that in the in the car world you know we who are again they're ahead of the uh, the, the the truck world in the car world you'll recognize this because in the cars we used to run 2.5 liter diesels and then they went to two liter and now they're getting the same um performance out of say a 1.4 or a 1.6 but you're having to spend a lot more of your time in the in, in sort of the efficient rev range to achieve this with the exhaust flaps to maintain temperature in the engine so it can burn optimally and keep the exhaust temperatures and the after treatment system at, at the optimal temperature to um, make sure the combustion and the emissions are what we say they are and we meet the we meet the homologation. I mean Mark we've, we've spoken here from primarily from a European perspective and a UK perspective on the emissions legislation that it stands. Now you have a global remit. You're looking at this all over the world. Is it a level playing field at the minute? Are uh, other countries starting to move rapidly towards catching up to where we are? No, it's a good point. In Europe, we're leading the way. Um, oddly, for tier four, America led the way. Um, which was which came as a bit of a surprise their legislation came in a year ahead of us as it stands today uh, as we've mentioned Europe are at stage five um, USA um, and Canada somewhat by by default 
um, following the US, they have remained at the tier four B or the or the stage five final, the stage four final. So they are one tier behind us in the USA and Canada. Um, but then in in Latin America, where there are quite a number of um, vehicles, they're at tier three. But the ones we're keeping, you know, the ones that are moving fast at the moment is China. They're, they have a, a draft document for their um, China 4 um, and India as well. You know, population, they're not massive machines, but the population of machines is very high. Globally, I would, I, I would imagine a, Europe will somewhat pause for a bit um, with the stage five. But yeah, globally, there's some work to be done so that we can make the best of the technology we have um, to reduce the emissions to the to the global climate. Well, today I am with uh, my colleague David Redman. Um, Hi there. Hi, David. And what we're going to be discussing is uh, tracks on a tractor. We've used them, David, as you're well aware, for many, uh, many years on the combines, but primarily for uh, flotation. The combines now are approaching 50 tons in a field. Um, so what is the driver behind fitting these tracks to a tractor? Uh, yeah, two reasons, Nigel. That's a, that's a good question. So the, the first reason is, is similar to yourself with the combine. It is there really as a flotational device. When you can kind of get to the, the track sector in the market, there's there's two main drivers for looking at tracks. One, like we just said, is is flotation because, as you said, combines are quite a heavier tool now. Um, when you when you start getting up to high horsepower, uh, they're getting heavier, so we have to kind of make a bigger footprint across the ground to to reduce our ground compaction. So so ground compaction stroke flotation is the first one. The second one is really horsepower. When, when you look at these tractors, the horsepower is up at you know, that kind of 400 horsepower uh, sector. And to put 400 horsepower to the ground through a kind of a small tire that's got minimal contact with the ground, even with tire technology today, uh, it can't be done. And, and track has a lot less slip. So the two drivers really, Nigel, are yeah, flotation and putting the power down to the ground. You talk about um, flotation. Mm -hmm. um, now, obviously, with the combines, we've got a, a variety of track widths that we can offer. But obviously, with uh, uh, with tractors, you've got row spacing as well as a consideration. Can you accommodate different track widths and different row spacings at the same time? Yeah, of course. So if you're ordering the tractor from you from the factory, uh, we can offer you here in the UK uh, really two two track widths. So is a 61 centimetre track, which is 24 inches in your money, Nigel, and a 76 and a 76 centimetre track, which is again 30 inches in your your money. The the common, the most common in the UK is the 30 inch track. So the wider the track, uh, you know, kind of the better. That's to, again to get that power down. As opposed to spacing, so um, yeah, similar to a, a tractor, a wheel tractor today, we can offer the, the track widths in various spacings. Again, it's easier to do from uh, from the factory. Uh, it can be set from the factory, but it can be done uh, afterwards at the dealership. And really, as we look, the, the common spacing uh, from the centres is, is 88 inch centres uh, from centre of the track to centre of the track. But we can go down to 80 inch centres. We can go up a lot wider uh, to accommodate, you know, this uh, controlled traffic farming. 
if you look at look throughout the industry, there are several different track designs. There's obviously the twin track design. There is the the quad track design. So we're obviously offering here uh, what can be best be described as a half track design. What is the the primary advantage with this half track design over the others? Okay, so if we take a twin track for example, and twin tracks have been around for for many years, uh, as you've probably uh, as probably seen back in the past, like the Fiat uh, metal track crawler, and and when you look at those tractors and and the design of those track layers hasn't changed a great deal in how they steer. When you steer a, a track laying machine, effectively what you do is you slow one track down and and speed one track up, which makes it makes it turn. Um, so that that kind of think that concept with a twin track machine today that that doesn't change when you turn a steering wheel rather than pull levers you, you effectively are introducing slip into into one of the uh, one of the tracks with our machine we, we have a front axle um, so we do the majority of our steering through the front axle and the and the tracks are just purely there for traction putting the power to the ground and and the flotation with a twin track machine, when you turn on the headland, uh, what you can do is you can create smearing. So you've seen it, I think, from your combines, Nigel, when you're doing the mapping. As you turn uh, on, on a headland, you create that smearing. Uh, that affects, obviously, crop production. And I think, uh, like I just said to you earlier, um, if you look at the, the the maps that you generate from your combine, you can clearly see where the smearing marks are, can't you, Nigel, from, from, your, from your maps from the combines in Teleview screen? Yes, it, it it sticks out absolutely, uh, absolutely like a lantern in the dark. Yeah, exactly. So, so when when we turn on the headland, we we try and avoid this this smearing uh, with with the twin track machine. Now, uh, the advantage is again similar to this with with a with a tractor stroke to this this kind of uh, track layer machine, if you like to call it that we kind of break some rules and and that's with the drive so with a twin track machine yeah obviously all of the drive is is kind of done through the back the back rollers but pushing the track forwards on a tractor when you start to look at how a tractor set up the, the drive to the wheels is is roughly 60 40 60 40 split Whereas on a on a track laying uh, machine of ours, you know the, the the smart track, the drive itself or the, the the weight distribution is a lot more focused to the to the rear of the tractor. So the drive and the weight distribution on the tractor is done a lot more through the rear rear, and then the wheels itself only do around about fifteen to twenty percent of the work, and they're really there for steering. So is is that why this design of track system works better with a with a GPS steering system? Yeah, for sure. So with again with a twin track uh, with GPS. So if you uh, pick pick an idea of sugar beet tops, you know, which are very slippery, if you are driving and ploughing in a in a field of sugar beet tops with a twin track machine, uh, what happens is you, you'll find you'll start to lose traction on the top with with the GPS steering because the GPS is always trying to correct itself to keep that straight line, you know, even if you're down to that kind of two and a half centimetre accuracy so it's, it's always constantly making the corrections so with the front axle we're, we're there steering steering the tractor to keep it on course because the other benefit that is if we've got um, uh, a front axle and uh, separately we've got four-wheel drive so if we do get into a model we can kind of pull ourselves out you don't have four-wheel drive on a twin track as you don't have uh, differential locks which we offer on here as well so even in situations where you shouldn't be in the field let's say and, and, a, and a twin track will get stuck what you'll find is a t8 if you engage the four-wheel drive engage the diff locks you can still pull yourself out of a, of a muddle with all of these these tractors um ballasting always seems to be a little bit of a dark art the the difference between 
dynamic ballasting and static ballasting. Um, do you ballast a track system like the like the uh, the twin track system any differently than you would a normal tractor? When you look at a tractor, and, and ballasting is a pet hate of mine, I'll be honest with you, Nigel. So, uh, if you look at a T8 today on wheels, uh, I think I said earlier the the split of a, of any tractor uh, realistically the aim is to go 60/40. So that's 60% of the the drive goes through the rear wheels, 40% through the front. And if you look at a lot of pictures on you know, Facebook and on Instagram of customers' machines, whacking great ballast weight on the front, uh, big ballast box, you know, probably full up of concrete or something like that. So they're adding you know, 1,500, 2,000 kgs of ballast on the front of the tractor. And that is not really the right place to do it. Because when you do that, you're kind of altering the balance of the, altering the, balance of the tractor. With the, um, with the smart track, with the TA Genesis smart track, as I said earlier, the, the the predominant amount of drive, the 80% of the drive is is kind of going through the rear, uh, through the track system. So 15 to 20%, if you like, is only going through the front. So imagine adding now 1,500, 2,000 kgs on the front of this tractor. And what you do is you use the front axle like a counterbalance uh, or a pivot point, and, and it starts to lift um, the, the power uh, off of the rear track, which is what we don't want to achieve. So there's a kind of rule of thumb with this tractor uh, when you're out in the field, and and that is, if you've got a drawbar mounted machine on the on the rear of the tractor, you don't need any ballast on the front whatsoever. It's it should be fairly minimal. Um, so whatever's with the tractor should be good enough. If you've got a three point linkage mounted machine, um, maybe a plow of some sort, it's only enough ballast to allow the tractor to pick the machine up at the headland and and to kind of turn the plow over or to do a headland turn. In this case, realistically, it's a maximum of 500 kgs. So we don't need to go plastering loads of ballast on the front of that tractor. You mentioned the fact that with the uh, obviously having a conventional steering axle at the front of the machine, uh, we don't have to use differential braking to to, to turn the machine. Um, but with no braking turning the machine, what are we using brake assist for? What is brake assist all about? Uh, brake assist. So that's, again, another interesting subject, which is... Uh, has come about really uh, from cadence braking. Uh, if if you um, obviously drive and uh, maybe you, you've gone and stood on your brakes in your in your car, and uh, the ABS system comes in and it it stops the wheels from locking up, so uh, it kind of sends shots of oil uh, down to the to the braking system on the car, uh, impulses in effect to to, to stop this uh, this lock up. The, the the turn assist, the brake assist, if you like. Um, is exactly the same as that. So the tractor knows when it's going into a turn. So the steering axles on the steering sensors on the front axle, and as we turn into a sharp headland turn, what it does is it applies, if you like, cadence braking to the innermost uh, uh, kind of track. So it helps break that one, but it also speeds up the one on the on the outside. So again, it stops it smearing on a headland so, and, it, and it effectively decreases the turning circle by 20%. With the combines, we have uh, two different types of, uh, of track, one using rubber suspension, one using fully hydraulic. Do, do the tractors use any kind of uh, suspension with the smart track system? Yeah, so we, we offer suspension in various uh, places on the tractor. So the first one, obviously, is the front axle. The front axle 
um, suspension is, uh, I think, is standard now. Really, in in the UK, most tractors ordered have front axle suspension. So, so yeah, for using the tractor uh, going down the road with the tractor, front axle suspension is is standard. The second is cab suspension. So we have a new cab suspension on the uh, on the Genesis tractor. It's a, a hydraulic uh, cab suspension which you can adjust the ride and the height from inside the cab using the touch screen. And then when you look at the track system, the track system has a degree of suspension as well. So um, your your suspension on your combine, I believe, Nigel, on the bogey wheels, you, you run uh, hydraulic actuators on the bogey wheels. Well, those bogey wheels on a on a T8, there's 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 three of those on a on a, on a T8. And they're actually mounted on on rubber kind of suspension blocks. So they also form a de degree of suspension as well. David, many thanks for your time today. That's been quite an illuminating um, set of answers on the on the on the smart tracks and the Genesis tractor. Um, so thank you for your time. But no you're you're, com you're coming back shortly. I understand you're going to be discussing uh, another aspect of uh, of tractor technology. Yeah, I'm going to be coming back. We'll be talking about transmissions. Okay, I look forward to it. Yeah. David, thank you very much indeed. No worries, thank you. Thank you for joining us for the New Holland Podcast. Next time, I will be speaking again to Mark Howe. We will be discussing the hydrogen tractor and the feasibility of a zero-emission vehicle in agriculture. We will also be speaking to Ian Burke, the hay and forage product specialist, and he's going to be talking to us about quality sensors uh, and the way that we can, again, use better data, get better information to make better decisions back on the farm. So if the latest lockdown is starting to wear a little bit thin and the face looking back at you in the mirror this morning had a face full of whiskers like a reject from a ZZ Top tribute band and also you have a passing interest in agricultural machinery, Join us next time. In the meantime, please stay safe.